So welcome to episode 13 of the Geek Therapy Podcast. Uh, today we have Dr. Patrick O'Connor, creator of Comicspedia, former guest on our show, also a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, and a few other projects. Um, what, what am I missing, Patrick? Well, I've, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I teach at the Chicago School. Um, I teach uh, expressive arts therapy courses and lifespan and some other courses coming up too, um, including a course on geek culture and therapy. Uh, starting this fall, where we'll be looking at various artifacts of geek culture and how they uh, help become a, they become a source of strength for people and how they help us overcome various obstacles and how therapists can utilize these artifacts in geek culture to help uh, encourage their clients to be successful and to find their own strength of you know uh, whether you love Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings or or superheroes, um, even playing video games and those characters and stuff. Um, that's a, a class that I've created for this fall that I'm very excited about. And I also teach at College of DuPage, a uh, junior college in the suburbs of, uh, of Chicago, where I teach intro to psych, um, as well as some other like lifespan courses and whatnot. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I kind of teach the, the full range of, uh, of psychology courses right now, from you know the first one of intro all the way through the more specialized grad school level courses. And rumor has it you will be giving a presentation at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Yeah. With... With a certain uh, Josue Cardona, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, we're we're uh, both. I'm sure very excited. Like, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, you and I are going to be presenting this summer at San Diego Comic Con on uh, um, uh, geek geek therapy, essentially, and uh, how superheroes can how superheroes empower all of us. Uh, we gave a, a version of this talk prior and had a great reception, a, a great turnout. A lot of people excited about superheroes and talked about how they empower us as people and how important they are to our culture and our society and I'm just absolutely excited and so stoked to be able to bring uh, that stuff and to help uh, get other people excited who are already going to Comic-Con who you know already going to have a good time and and uh, and are already excited about comics and superheroes and, and all that stuff so yeah it's, it's gonna be awesome and of course, this is this is the type of conversations you and I have all the time. Uh, one one of those that we've had is about a particular book by Mark Wade called Irredeemable. Um, we're both big fans. I'm also a big fan of Incorruptible. And I'm just going to go real quick into... See, Irredeemable is interesting to us because it's about a superhero who becomes a supervillain. And, then, and I love Incorruptible because it's about a supervillain who decides to become a superhero. And... That's really the general idea, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in these books, and there's a lot of things that always make us go like, "Wait a minute! Like this is this is really deep. This is there's a connection here. There's a connection there." Um, Patrick, I know you use it in your Comicspedia. You have a few issues there. Yeah, uh, I've got nearly the the entire series. I've got 30 out of the 37 issues of Irredeemable in there, um, and I've I in the past used it extensively in therapy and uh, uh, when I bring it to students now in my various uh, classes at the Chicago School, um, I usually try to host a, a little lecture at the end of each semester, just you know, showing people a bit about uh, how powerful comic books can be and, and how awesome superheroes can be. And I always bring a stack of irredeemable issues, and because of uh, apparently how much I love it and how much of the energy comes across during those talks, those always get picked up first by the students because they want to check it out and see how great it is. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's they, they get to see all about how... Um, you know, how powerful this series can be, just really exploring all the themes and the depth of it and all that. So Irredeemable is a huge part of Comicspedia and, uh, and its effectiveness. What does, what does Irredeemable mean to you, like personally? 
Irredeemable was kind of the uh, the the strongest charge of uh, of showing me how influential comics can be and how helpful they can be in in helping clients work through various issues. Um, early on, uh, I started Comicspedia. Like I started bringing Comicspedia together, kind of like 2009, 2010. I, I uh, trademarked it and got the site going, put it, launched all that. Like kind of more of the here it is to to you know the world. Um, in 2010, but early on, um, in you know late 2009 or so, uh, Irredeemable started in 2009, and I saw all these, you know, all this critical acclaim and stuff. People saying, you know, this is uh, like comic of the year, and it's so awesome and wonderful. And just as I was starting to like rigorously read comics uh, to get into this this database, I was like, okay, let's try out Irredeemable. And so, and I mean, I was hooked. And it wasn't just a personal thing of like, this is this is a great series. Like, it's 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 fascinating and and fun and and dark and heavy and really emotional. But when I started bringing it into into uh, sessions with clients and thinking how we can use these uh, these metaphors of of you know of heroes and and villains and all that stuff, um, man, it was just like. It was so powerful to see how how clients were reacting to that, and I realized that I had just struck a gold mine. That this was as as great as comic books are in in helping people kind of overcome various things. At least with the clients I was working with at the time, there was nothing better than Irredeemable for helping like disadvantaged youth essentially um, uh, get a, gain a, a stronger perspective on where they were in life and where they could go in the future. Yeah, and uh, we we read comics a lot, but uh, we we don't know every single comic. So um, if anybody has any other ideas of great comics that they think, you know, have might have such an impact, like let us know and and we'll check them out. But definitely of the ones that we've read, um, and that I've read, uh, this is really special. And and I do want to I I want to make um I want to make a comment about Mark Wade. Mark Wade, uh, who who wrote these books, and he's he's been on fire the last few years. Um, award-winning comics and runs on um, <clears throat> Daredevil. I think he's writing Hulk now. Oh, I'm really excited. He's going to be writing a Rocketeer series mm-hmm. uh, uh, coming up soon. And uh, I'm really I'm really excited about that. But he's also, um, like something about him that I'm not sure how many people know is that he is like a Superman historian. Mm-hmm. right? He knows so much about Superman. So when you read Irredeemable, Plutonian, uh, the, the main character, is really like a Superman type character. and He has a lot of similarities. And uh, some of the situations that he's in, it really is, uh, you can imagine Clark Kent and Superman being in that situation, but then the Plutonian does and goes in a completely different direction. And, um, and in some ways, I think more, more realistic. Right? Like if, uh, if uh, Superman were a real person, like I could see these reactions actually occurring for, for really good reasons because of the way it's written. I don't know if uh, you, you agree or not, but his power sets are the same, you know, and some of the situations that we'll go into are, are, are very Superman-esque. And, and yeah, and to set the tone of the book, the first, like the opening panels of the book are our hero, right? Uh, the Plutonian, you just look in his eyes and he looks angry. And then they start firing up, and there's heat vision, kind of like Superman, coming th- from the eyes. And he essentially, in the first scene of the book, he just murders a, a fellow superhero and his entire family. Right. So, and that sets the tone for the book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he and and it's kind of his uh, his coming into power on the supervillain side. He you know leans in as, as a young girl. Sarah just watches her dad uh, um, 
the a former superhero, you know, become murdered, and and her um, her mom and her uh, younger sibling. Um, he leans in, you know, he says, "Do you know, you know, do you know what I am, Sarah?" And he leans in to her ear and says, "I'm a superhero," and he blasts off. He just he he. There's a turning point. This gets explored later in the series where the Plutonian realizes that um, that people may be out to get him, or that he's not. You know that he can't. He just can't keep on uh, being the hero. He can't keep on being the good guy, and and that nobody really respects who he is as a person. And he's just, you know, he takes all of that energy, all that power, and just casts it in a completely different direction. And from there, it's just tragedy after tragedy, as well as flashbacks looking into his past, um, just kind of show us how how he got there. So actually, let's go into that because I, I'm curious if we both see exactly the same um, motivation. Like, so, so he's essentially a Superman-like type character. Everybody loves him. He is the savior, right? He's our number one superhero in the world. Right. And he turns. So, wh- why do you think that he turns? Well, his what we see throughout various issues is that as he's growing up, he's placed in foster home and, and foster home, just like rotating from one home to another. Uh, because as a child, he has powers, but he can't quite control them yet, and he doesn't know what to do. Sometimes he acts a little too strongly. He uh, he flies, you know, which which will be shocking to anybody who's not used to seeing people fly. And um, you know, he he just kind of playing around with some of his powers. And his foster parents, because they've just taken in a kid that they don't know, you know, they just days, weeks, maybe months into into living with this child, they think they're taking care of an eight-year-old boy, and all of a sudden he can pick up a car and throw it. Or that he can punch through a wall, or you know he can fly, um, and it's it scares these foster parents, and so they they cast him out and say I, I don't want any part of this, um, and along the way he again it's that's kind of one set of tragedy of of unacceptance of I'm supposed to be living with you and you're supposed to care for me but you're not you're not accepting me you're you're casting me out just like the last family I was with. Um, There's a quote from one of the social workers right in a report, and it says that. They don't understand what's happening because they've never found a boy who wanted to be loved so much. Right. So in the interviews, he's always talking about it. Just he just wants, uh, uh, you know, he just wants somebody to love him. He wants to be accepted. Exactly. And um, right, that's it's he he wants that love. He wants that support. He wants the family, and and so he's ready. He's primed to love and to and to be protective. Even um, there's one one tragedy in particular that occurs in issue ten, where he's sitting in school. And he hears the the cocking of a uh, uh, a forty four pistol, um, and he knows he knows that sound, and he becomes frightened, and he flies home uh, because he's he knows that his his mom is about perhaps to commit suicide, and he said um, uh, it was two miles away uh, between the school and the home, and at the speed I could move, it may as well have been two inches, except sound takes nearly ten seconds to travel two miles. She was already dead. And that even with his super speed and the super hearing, even with the powers that he was developing that he that that were coming into his own, they still weren't enough. They still weren't enough to account for just basic physics of the world that sound takes time to travel. And by the time it got to him at school, she was already collapsed on the floor. So he got there and, and found her dead. This foster mother that he thought he had protected, um, just moments prior, she was being abused by her husband and Tony as a kid just you know beat up the dad and threw him through a wall and says you know you can't you can't harm her and he goes to bed with her all happy you know a little kid sleeping in the bed like you know like you see a smile on his face but she is terrified because she thinks that 
um, you know, I just got rid of, we just got rid of this guy, but now who do I have next to me? What can he do? This, this other guy can beat me up, but he's at least another human. What is this kid? What he's, what's he going to do to me? She becomes so fearful, she takes her own life, and there's nothing he can do about it. And this is just a recurring kind of uh, message sent to him of either we don't love you, or we're so afraid of you that we can't even, we can't even tolerate our own existence. Yeah, I was just thinking, I think, don't three of his parents commit suicide throughout the series? There's, uh, yeah, there's, there's several different suicides. It's, I mean, again, in the course yeah. of 37 issues, you know, you've, you've got to factor into that you're reading, you know, uh, thousands of pages and you're going to be reading, uh, or rather hundreds of pages, and you're going to be, this was originally published over a three-year period. So on the one hand, while suicide seems to be, this, uh, it's not like an all-the-time thing, but it comes up at, at kind of key points that really show how traumatic that can be on a person's life. Um, yeah, but for him in particular, it was three sets of parents, I believe, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's terrible, tragic. For different reasons, though, for 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 very different reasons, I think. But still, um, it happened. You know, it was it was his parents at those different times. Right. Yeah, and I mean, can you imagine that that you're you're not living with your biological parents? You're being you know put into foster care, and, and of course. There are plenty of kids out there who have this experience, and uh, but imagine if it was taken a step further, where it's not just being cast out, but rather that they're they're harming themselves because of uh, of this child's actions. Again, this is all within the, a fictional world with with a you know a child developing superpowers and stuff. But um, again, the the recurring theme here is that uh, Mark Wade wanted to explore that idea of giving superpowers to somebody who is not emotionally equipped for the job. Um, there's a, a quote from him that um, his premise stems from the rejection of the idea that in superhero comics pretty much everyone who's called up upon to put on a cape at heart is emotionally equipped for the job. Uh, another favorite quote I have from him was, by classic superhero rules, a hero can't concern themselves with what people think of them, but that if you're so far removed as to not care what people think of you, it takes one less step to not care what people think. And so Plutonian takes, that, takes it to that level, that on, one hand, on the one hand, I, I, you know, superhero, you know, Superman and, and um, you know, Green Lantern and, um, you know, Wolverine or Hulk or whatever, like, they, they, they act in various capacities of, of good and, um, and they try not to care too much about what others think of them, of thinking them of, as being pompous or show-off or anything like that. Um, so what happens when you just don't care what people think at all? You know, just don't care about them. And Plutonian just is the embodiment of that. Yeah, and... Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, you know, they all have really positive parental figures who tell you how they shape them, you know, to be to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And and in the Plutonian's case, it's exactly the same thing. All of these experiences with his parents, not just like the the three suicides we mentioned, um he was he was kind of, you know, his parents were afraid of him, so he was neglected. He was abused in some instances. He was yeah, his experiences as a child definitely shaped him also. Right, exactly. You've got the, the, the parents who shape a child for good and the parents who shape a child for, for evil, you know, if you want to use that word. Um, there, there was one interesting exception in, in the Plutonian's life during his upbringing when he met Bill Hardigan, uh, one, one of the foster parents of his, and, um, and, he, and Bill said, well, we're going to, I can see that you're powerful and I'm going to teach you how to use this power for good, that we're all powerful people and that... You, you're going to be selfless and, and really help others. And he does, and, and he becomes uh, a, a force for, for greatness. Um, but that once Bill uh, discovers that his wife has 
an inoperable form of cancer. Shortly after that news is, is discovered, Bill and his wife die in a car accident. Uh, but Tony believes that this this is an act of suicide. Um, he wasn't really sure if it was a genuine accident, so that he continues then kind of on his previously set path toward evil. Um, you know, when you got all these messages conveyed to you that this is how the world is and that nobody's going to be there for you, people are going to leave you, people are going to be afraid of you, that here's somebody who genu genuinely expressed this love and support and I want to help you be a good person, but they, but they die in a car accident. Tony thinks, well, this is just confirming that notion again that, that nobody's going to be there for me and nobody cares about me and, uh, and you know, he's just going to pull the rug from underneath my feet. I guess that's just how the world is. Um, and so, yeah, we see just how influential some of his uh, parental figures can be. You know, but Bill Hardigan in particular, I see, I see a certain things in that situation. Like he really wanted uh, Tony to be selfless, mm -hmm. and, but then he would do things like give him a Christmas present, have him open it, get really excited, and then have him close the box again and then go give it away to charity. Right. right. So his, his intentions, I, I understand his intentions, right? Mm -hmm. But the way that affected Tony was, uh, you know, you don't really start figuring that out until later. Like, what does that do to a kid? When you wake up Christmas morning, you open up uh, something that you really wanted, and then you immediately get it taken away from you. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that's, a, that's a very adult kind of idea to pass to a child of, of being selfless, and we have to, you know, we can't take what we have for granted, and we have to be, you know, be giving and helpful towards others who are less fortunate than us. Uh, yeah, there's always a question when, whenever you have kids of your own of at what age can you begin teaching that and how are you going to teach that? Um, Bill Hardigan, while well-intentioned, perhaps chose a method that was inappropriate for Tony's age or maybe chose a method that was a bit harsh or um, you know, further kind of confirmed, again, that idea of, uh, you know, here you are loving me, but now you're taking away the, away the love from me. Like, I had this great experience, but I can't cherish it forever. You know, I have to give it away. Um, yeah, certainly some, some kind of questionable moments in there too. I think it goes into, I think Mark Wade does this a lot in the books. It just, it shows these extremes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like that would be the most extreme way possible to show the kid, you know, what, how, you know, how to be selfless. That's, that's one way of doing it, but that's a pretty extreme way of doing it. And his mom, uh, in that, in that instance, immediately tells the father, like, you know, it's okay for a kid to get a toy every now and again. Right, right. You know, he doesn't have to sacrifice everything. And the father completely disagrees. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And there are extremes, again, like he doesn't just go, he doesn't go a little bad, right? He goes completely opposite. He was, he was an idealistic superhero, right? The ideal of a superhero, mm -hmm. he was perfect, this idea. And then he goes into the complete opposite of not caring at all and just destroying you know, millions and millions of people and cities and just these extremes. It, it's interesting the way it, it plays into different areas of his life. Right, exactly. Um, there's a uh, there's an issue of Irredeemable I want to talk about. It's issue three that really highlights the Plutonian's perspective on the world. And this had a strong impact on a client of mine I was working with uh, a few years ago. He, uh, he was a 17-year-old male. He was uh, uh, involved in gang activity and drug activity. His parents were drug users. Um, he it was just running rampant throughout his family, um, a lot of criminals and and he was skipping school. I mean you you name it. This kid had something going on involved with it. Um, even had a, a a friend, a close friend who had committed suicide, um, just weeks prior to his entry into this residential treatment facility where I was working with him. Um, and so he's reading Irredeemable, and uh, again just a few issues in, 
and he pauses at this panel and he's he's obviously stopped you know he's not he's not reading slowly or anything but he's he's kind of it seems like he's reading these panels over and over again and and really spending some time on it and he turns the issue to me and he points to it and he says this is how i feel this is exactly what i think of the world um and so i want to read a little excerpt uh, tony is talking to a um, a villain. Uh, there's a group of villains who are trying to plot how to stop Tony. At this point, Tony's been you know plenty evil and killed people and all that, and so the villains are banding together trying to figure out how they can stop him. Tony arrives uh, unexpectedly, you know, much to their surprise, and says, "Oh, hey, what's going on here, guys?" Um, and so he has this conversation with one of the villains, and uh, he says to the villain, uh, "You don't mind if I call you by your first name, right? I mean, I've known it. I, I've known it. I know all of you." But it always seemed easier on the soul to think of you as the fixer, or her, as Encanta. That way you were problems rather than people. So let me tell you about the kind of world I live in. It is a world of miserable, bitter, ungrateful paramecium who lash out at you in a state of perpetual rage for not solving their problems fast enough. And here, Tony is is expressing his kind of disgust with the world, that as much as I try to give it, it never seems to be enough. And my client certainly had this feeling of of any child growing up. No child wants to be a bad kid. Nobody wants to make bad decisions and bad choices in their life and to say, you know what, I really want to screw up my life. Nobody says that. But here's a kid who, throughout all of his various attempts to try to be the good guy, to try to get good grades, he he would have parents who wouldn't be involved, who would be too stoned and, and drunk to, to ever care or to perhaps abuse him. He'd come home with something good to, to talk to them, and they'd ignore him and, and kind of shove him off into a corner and say, you know, just get out of my sight. And you're, you're, you know, too much for me right now. Um, every attempt that this kid would naturally have to be happy about something or proud about something, there was some important person in his life who was rejecting of it. And this just became constantly reinforced, even to where his friends, who he thought were there for him and that he had great relationships with, for one person communicated to him that it wasn't enough and that he took his own life regardless of what my client could do to stop him. Um, just it, it again, it wasn't they weren't exact mirrors of, of my client's life and, and the Plutonian's life, but he saw plenty of, of evidence already so far in what Tony had seen that when Tony got to that panel and he got to share what how he views the world, my client was right there with him. He said, Yeah, this is this is exactly how the world works for me. And from there, it opened up a huge window for therapy and how we could explore the way he views the world, uh, the way the, the world is viewed by other people, what it takes to get to that point of viewing the world like that, what you can do to perhaps change that perspective. Um, a really, really crucial point. Again, just another gift from Mark Wade in, in these wonderful, wonderful issues of Irredeemable. So what were the things that really got Tony to feeling like the world is ungrateful and you know he's done so much and he's he's gotten nothing in return well there was uh one one moment where he uh he was he had on this false persona this kind of Clark Kent he was Dan Hartigan and this is the the persona that he had uh, the alter ego that he had maintained since leaving Bill Hartigan as his uh, as foster father um he was working at a, a radio station he was dating a girl and a um, um the girl had was uh uh, in love with Plutonian, and hadn't known that he had this alter ego, and that and was actually her coworker Dan Hartigan. Um, so and this is exactly the Clark Kent Lois Lane dynamic. Right. right? Lois right. Lane is in love with Superman. They know each other. She also works with Clark Kent. She doesn't know that he's Superman. They see each other every day, and then one day 
and and irredeemable. Tony does what Superman has done in the past, right? That he reveals himself mm-hmm. to Lois, right, right? right? And then and then in in Superman, I can't remember any time, right, when either Lois didn't already know, <laughs> or <laughs> right. or she was uh, she seemed okay with it, right, right, right. like uh, or or excited or happy that type of thing. Maybe scared a little, but I can't think of any iteration where it went wrong. Right. Yeah. There's it, been many because it happened so much, but uh. It's usually a happy, happily ever after, right? Yeah. For, for Clark and Lois, yeah. but for Tony, yeah, not not so much the case. Um, she her her name's Alana, and uh, and she said that she panicked and she got angry that he would keep this from her, and uh, and and she can't believe that that he would kind of be living this dual life, and and that uh, you know she's kind of thinking like, is this a sick joke? Like, what are you doing here? And so she just kind of like runs over to the microphone and starts to uh, to spread the word on the radio of saying, "Hey, everybody! You know, uh, Tony is really Dan Hardigan," and um, and so Tony instantly leaps into the sky and destroys the satellite before uh, that that could broadcast again to give you an idea of how fast he can fly and how strong his powers are. That before her voice could even be heard on the air by anybody, he can fly up, destroy the satellite, and return to Earth in time. Um, now, what do you, what do you think of her reaction? It was. Um, I can I can understand it to a point. I don't know about running over and, and kind of tossing it out and you know onto the radio like that. Um, that's but I can totally understand being upset at least and and being like, what is this? So, you know, here I'm... it is kind of like it is kind of creepy, right? Like, so you've known for all this time and you've just let me play along and you talk to me and you talk about the other person. Like, yeah, she yeah. she thought creepy she thought it was yeah i think she does call it a sick joke yeah how do i like have conversation with you you know in this kind of capacity but then in this other kind of capacity and you know uh you know telling you secrets but this other person really knew or you know how his personality was maybe portrayed by as dan hardigan um because she's even said like she doesn't she wasn't really like connecting with them or thought like dan was just an okay guy kind of thing like she wasn't you know she wasn't feeling like any kind of competition between dan hardigan and the plutonian like what kind of a person, you know, plays a double role like that, right? And 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 have you been laughing at me this whole time? Yeah, I don't know. I I thought it was a pretty normal reaction. Yeah, oh, I, agree. I think it in a in a more a, a more realistic reaction than maybe what's happened in other superhero comics when a similar thing happens. Right, yeah. No, I, I think that absolutely the, the reaction initially was was normal for uh, and, and kind of expected of like what the you know what the hell is all this? Um running to the microphone and, and shouting it. I mean that was that was a big mistake. <laughs> and uh um but I mean who knows? I mean it's uh, any anything can happen in that kind of a, a crazy situation. Um but uh but Tony returns after destroying the satellite and says, Do you realize that you now know the most dangerous secret on earth? Villains would torture you to learn about my private life. Um, they would flay your partners and rape your children with hot knives. Uh, this, I mean, just you know, another moment of of a loved one, somebody he cared about, that he could you know carry her to you know the far reaches of the world and take her to you know uh, deserted islands and and have you know fresh seafood prepared by him or whatever. You know, like imagine dating a superhero who could do anything on the planet that he so wanted and and so they had this great relationship and she enjoyed some wonderful luxuries thanks to him and she and the how quickly she turned it around to harm him you harmed me and now I'm gonna harm you with it 
he just said, you now you have no idea what you just did. Again, and again, these are like extreme emotional reactions right. to, to a situation. Like uh, there's there's no way to prepare for something like that. But everybody in that in in this one situation had an extreme reaction. She she reacted in one way and the whole time while he's telling them, you know, like you guys just screwed yourselves. Like you have no idea the danger you just put yourself in. He's also very angry, and mm-hmm. and if you look at the panel, you see his face. You see how he's just he's he's not so much he is worried about them maybe, but he's really just furious and and feel betra- and feels betrayed again. Right, absolutely, and um, uh, and there's even a, another scene in, in a different issue where he um solves this this big bomb from, from going off, or he, he you know kind of saves the day in this big fight and whatnot, and eventually lands on this this guy's boat, damages the boat. And uh, the guy's yelling at him, saying, uh, "Why don't you, you know, fix my boat? I mean, you could use your super speed, and you could, you know, patch this all together in a couple minutes. And you know, what the hell is all this? Look at all you did to my boat." Meanwhile, Tony, we can see, is hearing all these cries for help around the world, all these, you know, terrible human tragedies and and victims of various crimes and all that, who really have major problems. And here's a guy who's saying, "I've got a hole in my boat. Why don't you fix it? You know, take a few minutes to fix this." And this ends up being a, a huge moment where he just says, you know, like, screw it, and flies off into space and spends just 10 minutes on the moon. Um, we see that this leads to even yet another tragedy. But, I mean, again, just in, uh, even though the, um, uh, that quote that I had read occurs in issue three, uh, we see some troubles that occur in the first couple of issues that lead up to it. But one after another, as, as flashbacks continue to happen, we, we just keep seeing that his you know, nobody is, is grateful for him. Well, not no one, uh, right? Well, not no one. Right. Like, no, he no, focuses on the negative ones. Exactly, yeah. His... More more people appreciate him and more people love him than, than he realizes, right. but he focuses on the negative. Exactly, and from his, per- yeah, exactly. From his perspective, nobody cares about him kind of thing, or, or you know, pretty much nobody, and that um, every time that he's gotten close to somebody and every time that he's trusted himself with somebody, they've somehow used that to get back at him. Um, there's there's even uh, another key area where he there, there's this wax um, uh, this kind of like alien wax uh, in a candle that when the wax was burned uh, or has some magical properties when the when the candle was burned nearby it would make him mortal and allowed him to have sexual relations with uh, with another uh, with a female superhero um, and then you know the candle would go out and stop melting and he'd gain all those powers back um, but she apparently, even when they were having relations, had a little bit of doubt about his capacity for good, and so she kept some of that wax. She, her, her one of her special powers is that she fires these these unique bullets that can kind of trap people or or open like little holes and and um, you know cut through buildings and and whatnot. So she forms the wax into a bullet and holds onto it kind of just in case. Um, and it, and we see this kind of come out later when he when he becomes aware that this was done. I mean, you can imagine again here here are all these people around him who are committing these acts and doing these things out of distrust that they just they just don't know, you know what where his power is going to take him or, or you know how bad how evil he could be. Do you think it was like how evil he could be or or just a precaution? It's I think I think it's. I mean, I can understand the precautionary step that. You're going to be that you want to make sure that you're that the things don't go wrong or that you're not 
that you're you cover your bases. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I mean, that's the thing that superheroes are known for, of course, is that they they have this ability to kind of plan ahead and think like, well, just in case, I'll make sure that I set something up over here, or that I, you know, help I talk to the police and get on their good side, or that, you know, they're, they're all about kind of making sure the the just in case scenarios, especially a character like Batman, for example. Um, but uh, so we we do see some of that, and that's that's certainly common in superheroes, and it's common in this book. Um, and it's just through Tony's perspective that he's viewing it as uh, he takes that precautionary measure, and I think views it as distrust. Um, I'm I'm person uh, personally because of my love for the Irredeemable series. Um, I, while I don't identify with Tony as a person, um, it's like we have a lot in common. You know, these tragedies and whatnot, or you know, <laughs> drive toward evil. Um, I've I loved the character so much and thought it was he was so layered, so deep, and had such difficult issues and. And how he handles them, and and you know tragedies that that occur in his life, um, it's I'm kind of quick to take his side. So yeah, when I talk about some of these things, it's it's often from kind of Tony's perspective. Um, you know, yeah, very few people yeah. caring for him and distrusting him and doing this kind of like this malicious view of you know you're going to harm us some you know somehow someday. Um, but yeah, yeah, because I still think that most people were surprised, right? Yeah. I don't think I don't think anybody expected him to to turn evil right right and uh yeah yeah the, his his superhero team the paradigm even uh has that reaction of of like what you know tony did that uh when he levels the city and and causes all this damage around the world starts killing people there is a, a very kind of uh, a very clear uh reaction of, of shock i can't believe that it was tony who did this so incorruptible is a a second series that mark wade wrote in the same universe and it takes the perspective of this supervillain who becomes a hero. And you find out that his origin and the Plutonian's origins are, are intertwined. And there's one thing that the Tony, it's like a recurring theme that he, because of the way that he's been treated throughout his life and because of that fear that uh, his parents showed towards him and, and which led then to him being sent from foster home to foster home. He was really afraid of people seeing that. So he tried really, really hard to be the complete opposite of that, right? To be, he knew he was capable of it, I think, but he tried his best to be the opposite of, of what he eventually became. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Right. So then uh, with his, uh, with the, the guy who turns, uh, who's a villain and turns into a hero, his name is uh, Max Damage. And he, they actually find each other when they're kids. Um, and they don't know this until later again, right? But when he's a, a kid, um, right after there was a car accident and two of uh, Tony's parents died, and he went off to live into the woods for a while, right? Like he didn't want anything else to do with the system. He didn't want to be around anybody. He didn't want to go to another home. So he just lived on his own. And there were like stories, right, of a wolf boy in the woods. And um, so this kid who eventually became Max Damage, but when uh, his name is Evan, and he sees him in the woods and he, when he sees him, he sees his eyes light up and he is petrified, right? Like he is so afraid of him. And that look on his face kind of haunts uh, Tony for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And he tries to avoid that from, from ever happening uh, again. So how do you see, do you see that playing into other areas uh, of what we see? You know, that, that fear, like that, uh, of people seeing who he really was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he, I, I think he wants to be, yeah, I do think that there's a part of Tony that, Tony that wants to be the good guy, but that he just doesn't have 
he just doesn't have enough kind of support or, or you know, if we can call the experience evidence, you know, that if, uh, if you're going to make a decision about something, you want to gather your evidence and, and consider it all and say, okay, now this all aligns in such a way that this is the natural conclusion that I can draw from it. Um, that Tony doesn't have enough evidence to show that the world is, um, you know, appreciative and loves him and that he's a good person and that he's, uh, and all that. So he's, he's naturally going to be cast in this kind of bad direction, but that he doesn't necessarily want to be. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that that's, it, that really just kind of highlights some some key notions in psychology that people, uh, especially in humanistic psychology, that that where we think that people are born good, you know, that people are born or at worst neutral, um, you know, when you look at uh, when you look at babies and infants and and how they learn to 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 crawl and to walk and all that, there's nothing a parent needs to do to teach them how to get up. A a, a child can do that on their own. They do it at different rates, but when they fall down, it's them who who gets themselves right back up and um, it, that natural resiliency, the natural, you know, um, uh, kind of casting towards success, and I want to be good at something. I want to develop a skill. I want to be, you know, I want to accomplish. Um, that's present in Tony just the same. And uh, but he thinks that the world is a little bit different than it really is, and he kind of has this mask over it, and so he kind of maintains that. He's he's afraid that if somebody discovers who he really is or what. Uh, what kind of person he really is deep down inside that that could be used as like that that could be a, a, viewed as a weakness or used against him and then he would lose all power um, over himself or or anything that he would then cease to be any any kind of unique person or special in any way. So this is kind of a running joke between uh, Patrick and I. Um, he loves a whole bunch of quotes from Mark Wade about irredeemable, and one of my favorite quotes by Mark Wade about both series is how. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, he he says it's it was a lot more fun to write Incorruptible than Irredeemable, um, which is a just supports my theory that Incorruptible is better than Irredeemable. Right. But again, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again that's just a, a running joke between us. Um, and I mentioned Incorruptible briefly, but I think I mentioned before that these extremes, right? So so Tony is a the idealistic superhero, can do no wrong, represents everything that is good. And then he goes the complete opposite and turns into pretty much the worst thing we could possibly imagine. And Incorruptible is the complete opposite. Um, it's Tony's arch nemesis. Like I said, uh, this kid named Evan, he becomes, he takes on the name Max Damage. And his uh, motivation for, for, being, for being a villain are pretty much just as tragic. Not, well, no, not just as tragic, but they're... they're they're understandable why he became a villain and he's pretty bad again he's the arch nemesis for plutonian he his power is that the longer he stays awake the more resilient he becomes talking about resiliency like he becomes stronger and um, tougher and essentially more invincible the longer he stays awake it's a it's a pretty interesting dynamic so he has a plan is sleeping accordingly to what he's uh, gonna do or what his plans are and then he's actually there He's present the first time that Tony goes on a rampage, and he uh, Tony destroys an entire city, just kills millions of people, destroys a whole city, and Max was there, and in that moment he says um, something in me changed, and let me actually let me I have uh, one of the panels too. Let me bring that up, and he says. I've done a lot of unpleasant things in my life. I was never a hero. I stole, I wrecked things, but I sure as hell didn't want the world to end. It's funny. 
um, some of the guys who were on the team, um, now I'm just uh, paraphrasing. So he mentioned some of the people who were um, on the team um, and how he, he hated them. Uh, the, the team that uh, Tony was on, how he hated them. He says, but Plutonian, I just wanted him out of my way. I hated him, but I wasn't stupid enough to want him dead. Even I believed he was always the one man in all creation we could count on to save us from ourselves. Without him, we have nobody. So I decided we needed somebody. So his motivation was kind of to step in and become that ideal that he lost, right? So from his perspective, even if he did bad things, even if he was a really bad guy and he knew it, there was, there, you know, there's no doubt about that. But he saw Tony as the one good guy. That if things got really bad and they needed somebody, he would be the one. And then to have that moment and just be so scared of seeing this one guy, your ideal, right? He, he doesn't come out and say, you're my hero or anything like that. But he understands what he represented. And then to see that die is what, is what shook him up. So he decided to step in and become that ideal for everyone else because everyone should have that one really good ideal idea or person to go to person who you can count on now he goes about it in again he goes from one extreme to the other uh, to, to uh, he actually has a, a, a partner an underage partner who's called jailbait and the moment he comes back and he becomes a hero uh, he doesn't let her touch him he decides no 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 you're not legal we're not we're not having a relationship anymore like this is what i do now and he he actually gets rid of his secret headquarters because it was paid for with blood money he burns all of the money he stole over the years he destroys all of the cars that he stole he's starting from scratch he wants to represent what he believes is the ideal superhero and it's a really, really interesting story because, it, again, it's the complete opposite of what, of what happens in Irredeemable. And again, the title is called Incorruptible. So while maybe we can go into the title a little bit in just a second, but while Tony, he essentially becomes something that is so bad that there's no coming back from it. And Max, he decides to become something that is so good that it's something that you an ideal right to become the ideal that you can't ignore or you can't you know the, the one thing that everybody would probably aspire to now of course it's a it's a disaster uh, on, on many levels because it is really difficult to become that and i think that's one of the great parallels between the two series because both characters actually try to be this perfect ideal and help everyone and they both realize that they can't and they both deal with it in very, very different ways. And actually, I never even thought about this until now, but um, Max really is a, an analogy for resilience. You know, he really is much more capable of, uh, much more emotionally resilient to deal with that idea of becoming incorruptible, of becoming this ideal than Tony ever was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Tony is uh, is kind of, broken from the get-go even uh i won't give away too many the specifics on it but from birth the moment that he um he has these kind of like alien energy kind of parents and they they take his essence and put it into a, a human infant and and from that moment it's tragedy is just it just begins and um and so he's kind of um kind of screwed over from the beginning of not having the the emotional capacity to to handle this stuff and to get uh, uh and to be um, to be resilient. So yeah, as you mentioned, between the two series, one of them we see what happens when somebody is not very resilient, given all this power, and they and they just can't handle kind of the hardship that naturally comes with it. 
And on the other hand, you have somebody who who kind of begins by being reckless and then realizes like I actually have some some power. Like here's I can I can make a difference. Here's something that I can do. I've been successful at being bad. So what if I take that and like you know overcome various obstacles and stop the good guys and whatever? Like I I was successful. I was good at being bad. Um, kind of like uh, reminds me of the the movie Megamind. Um, being bad is the one thing I was good at. Um, but uh, here, um, you know, Max Damage says I can take that and turn it into something actually worthwhile and 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 positive. So absolutely, they they are just the the complete opposite of one another. Um, Again, and, and and it's striving for those extremes, mm-hmm, right? Right. Like he he starts off actually the first time he ever meets Tony. Tony shatters his body, so he's an entire body cast, and then. That's what motivates him to know I need to be stronger. I need to be able to withstand more. Mm-hmm. And eventually he gets powers and stuff and, and he becomes that. But again, to go from those extremes, right? They both go to completely opposite extremes. Mark Wade is a genius. Mm. I think uh, that the idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, I don't, I don't know the exact history of how it happened, but the idea of having a superhero who becomes a villain is a lot of fun. And seven issues into that series, he, he came out with another series. So I'm sure the idea, I mean, he must have thought, well, it would probably be equally as fun to do the opposite. Right. Uh, very early on, because uh, yeah. So by issue seven of uh, Irredeemable, we had issue one of Incorruptible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a little bit of uh, kind of timing difference, but that was only when you know when they were coming out, um, you know, being published. Yeah, I don't regularly. think it was part of the plan, right? right? I don't think it was part of the plan originally. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. So let's talk a little bit about those titles. Then. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, with so with Irredeemable, um, Wade has said that he didn't. Uh, you know, that it wasn't necessarily, while there's no hope for Plutonian, um, the title doesn't necessarily refer to him. So, you know, with superhero comics, a lot of the titles have to do with who's in it. You've got the Uncanny X-Men, you've got Batman and uh, Superman and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, they're, uh, they're largely titled after the hero that's being featured. Uh, but in Irredeemable, it's uh, it's it's kind of strange and it was incorruptible, of course, too. Um, that it, they're not called the Plutonian or called you know the Paradigm or Max Damage or anything like that. Um, they're not focused on who the characters are, but rather kind of the actions that are taken. That's that's what I take away from it. That the series is uh, is taking these characters and and basically based on the title, what happens when people. Um, commit irredeemable acts over and over and over again. That they commit these acts that you just can't even think how they could redeem themselves, how they could come around and and be be good again. Um, uh, whether it's others enacting tragedies on on Tony's life or Tony enacting the the terrible tragedies on 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 mankind, um, it's just. And later, even he gets trans, uh, transported to other worlds and he meets alien races and they commit irredeemable acts and, and he returns in kind upon them. Um, it's it, That series just explores that idea over and over again of what happens when others just bring tragedy to your lives. And, and again, with clients I'd worked with, um, especially living in the, the teens I worked with in that residential treatment facility, they all identified with with Tony and, and just it just knowing that feeling of others committing irredeemable acts or even themselves committing a crime or, or, you know, doing something, doing drugs. And as bad as that is, now having the viewpoint from their teachers, from their loved ones, from their friends or or whoever was around them as you just did something bad. And I can't imagine you ever being good again. That's all what irredeemable is about. I'm going to, I'm going to actually, I look at it a, a little differently. I think the title, um, is really represents the the struggle for redemption, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
more than more than the acts themselves just the i think i think what we see is that we see two characters you know it, tony and irredeemable and and max and incorruptible um it's their struggle to be that and then that struggle involves like a life and a bunch of people who who make that really difficult and circumstances that are out of our control and a lot of lot a lot of complicated things that that really make it a struggle so i i see i see the title really representing more again being representative of like uh so i i want to be uh redeemed i want to be this thing but um but i always feel like it, it can't happen so while i want to be redeemed i i am irredeemable right a feeling that um a lot of people struggle with mm -hmm. yeah no fat, great view i don't think there's I, a right answer is there no no i well like, did mark wade come out right out and say right no yeah <laughs> yeah we'll have to we'll have to ask him i guess the next time we bump into him um but uh but yeah otherwise it's i, I don't know if there's yeah right um i don't know if there is a right answer it's it i i think uh i think both of our interpretations have, have certainly a lot of merit behind them um and ultimately in the work we do um whatever our clients get from it um, is what they need from it, and that's really what matters. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that and how uh, you know, the impacts that these stories have and why perhaps they have a bit of impact. Um, I, when I think of uh, uh, Irredeemable and the work that I've, I've seen it, um, how impactful I can, I can see it being in clients as well as other comics, just superhero comics in general, a lot of them are, are you know, based on this, this basic idea of modern mythology where myths are essentially structured so that they are uh, these stories that kind of explain the world it, how the world is using specific characters and that that's kind of passed on from generation to generation that um, you know without it being uh, you know what the specific people in the real world you know are, are little um, are perhaps not as relevant as the stories we tell that are fictional that could be continued and kind of shaped over time that when you read comics from decades past um, the uh, uh, kind of the things that the character dynamics and who they face and what are some of the social issues at the time and all that come through in the comic books and we can kind of see how Bruce Wayne had adapted to various kind of cultural periods throughout uh, throughout his lifetime. It's not, I mean, it's not like a, a major part because he does live in Gotham City. That's a little resistant to uh, being that's fictional. Then it's resistant to what's going on in the real world, um, you know, that the writers themselves live in, but. The thing about comics, and, and especially in Irredeemable, is that, um, and, and uh, Incorruptible as well, is that they, they're, they're these fictional characters that have such rich stories, and, and, um, and we can see their outcomes, we can see what happens when they try it, and it's, it just makes it very natural and easy to consider what would I do in that situation, or how, um, uh, now that I see how it played out here, how does that impact my life? That... Um, you know, Tony had tragedy after tragedy in his life, and perhaps I have some as well as in mine. He made, he has this kind of thought process that that's the way everybody is, just like the client I mentioned, that this is how I view the world, and, and Tony just hit the nail on the head. Um, so do we have to accept that? Is You've gotten a lot of evidence of that so far. Is that a notion that is healthy to maintain, uh, accurate to maintain? I mean, gen genuinely, where where is this going to get you? Um, and uh, and clients will will just naturally again just connect with these stories with these uh, with these modern myths, 
and see themselves in it. It's it's almost like there's a little mirror, I think, in, in every comic book issue um, that, that a client enjoys. So certainly there would be comics where you read was like, okay, that's not me. That's I don't like this because I just don't identify with the character. Um, I personally, I think Wolverine's pretty cool. I think he's a lot of fun to watch on TV, but when I read his comics, I'm not that thrilled. Um, I don't see a lot of myself like parallels between myself and that character. Um, but other other books, though, I find fascinating, and, and I think that clients, from what I've seen, do exactly the same thing, where they see a little bit of themselves, and they love to explore, uh, you know, what is this saying about the world I live in? What is it saying about um, uh, about people, about mankind, and, and uh, relationships, and all of that? Um, irredeemable and incorruptible. The, the nice thing about them being complete series is that you have a beginning and, a, and an end. You've got a lot of stories kind of tied off and whatnot. It's not just ongoing and kind of this perpetual run of storytelling and whatnot. So somebody can easily just pick up, you know, of course, every issue, every trade paperback or whatnot and, and read it from begin, beginning to end and find various moments of kind of like chapters in a book of like that stood out to me. This was a key piece and really resonated with me or perhaps the character does in general of in a story like Irredeemable, we see the origin story uh, kind of comes peppered throughout, but really, really heavy in the end, the final issues. It's all finally spelled out um, how he came to be. And uh, uh, so we get to kind of piece it all together. How did he come to be? Who did he have relationships with in his life? How did they react to his actions? How did he react to their actions? And how does it all tie together then? Because uh, there is an end. And um, and so we get to see, like, how does that kind of play out? How does that impact a person's entire existence? It's, yeah. To be fair, uh, Mark Way did say he could revisit these universes at any other time. Mm. Um, but, right, and, and and in comics, it's not uncommon to get um, a full run of new comics between one old issue and another one or prequels or mm -hmm. what ifs and stuff. But for us, it's I think it's it's convenient yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's good because if we talk about these characters, there's only a set amount of, uh, there's only one version of these characters right. and there's only one story for, like you said, Wolverine, um, there's so many decades of, of different versions of Wolverine. Yeah. And now he's a completely different person than he was when he, you know, when he was first created and um, the new stories might speak to you more than the old ones did. And, and, there's eight different versions of him every month coming out. So it, it gets a little difficult for to identify with one person. Mm -hmm. Like Batman, like everybody has a different version of Batman that they like more, even though at the core he's the same character, same with Superman. Um, so w at least with these characters, if we can go into, like we can actually sit down and talk about Plutonian and Max and some of the other characters in the series without having to go back into, well, you know, well, I'm talking about pre-New 52 or the old uh, Bronze Age or the Silver Age and things like yeah, that. when this writer wrote it, you know, like, oh, I can't believe yes. you would identify with that writer and, the, and how where they took Bruce Wayne and, you know, whatnot. Yeah, there's always going to be that disagreement, but... Not, exactly. Yeah. So it's good for us. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. The nice thing about these is that one person wrote it the whole way through and, uh, you know, so it's it's really consistent and um, yeah, things do tie off at the end. Yeah. So what are one of those? Uh, so what do you think are the takeaways from from Irredeemable specifically? I can go into Incorruptible, but like uh, those those main uh, takeaways that that people should you know if if they're struggling through a particular thing or there's a particular idea that they really like, um, what are the things that they could get from a series like Irredeemable? With Irredeemable, it's essentially about a person with with limitless power. Uh, it's it's again touching on this humanistic psychology perspective where 
people are born inherently good or at worst neutral and everybody has this this capability to be good at something we can't perhaps all be um you know major league baseball players or we can't all be astrophysicists or whatnot but some of us can be certainly very skilled at um at, at being a good husband or wife or a good father or mother or brother or sister we can be skilled at um at uh you know making pizzas or being skilled at uh, you know, understanding literature or whatnot. I mean, everybody can have a strength and, and be good at something and feel rewarded by that skill that they've developed. And Irredeemable um, does highlight this, at least when you get through the end, because uh, Tony essentially, by not knowing his origin story and not knowing what he's really capable of, is constantly kind of held back. It, as terrible as, as, as his actions may be and as strong as he can enact his power on the world and, and kill... Uh, millions and millions of people. Um, he uh, he still. There are times where he is kind of subdued or uh, put under arrest or controlled by an alien race or by another hero or by somebody. When in reality, if if he ever really knew how powerful he could be, he has true like limitless power. Um, and that it's only because his life has been full of tragedy. Um, with very few people genuinely supporting his development in a positive way, that he's unable to flourish uh, as a as a hero, um, and and it's only at the end does he realize how much he can manipulate like physics. And uh, there's a, a big kind of fight in the end where a villain um, is able to to use these uh, these other powers, where um, it takes the energy of a, of an entire star system. To, to inflict injury upon Plutonian because Plutonian is becoming that powerful. He's getting just so big, so strong, and can do so much, uh, but it takes so long for him to even be aware of that. And so we see these stumbles all along the way. When it comes to clients, I think I think a lot of people identify with this. I do think that it's easier for clients with, uh, with kind of uh, troubled past to identify with it because um, if you're just picking out a few issues of Irredeemable, that's going to be kind of the quickest and easiest way to address that is, is what is it like when you have these, these tragedies and traumas from your past and how you react to them? Um, how does it kind of influence your perspective of the world and what that, that common thread message is to you? Um, at the same time, if somebody is fortunate enough to read through the series from beginning to end, they'll see that it really is, I think, about somebody who... Uh, about anybody essentially who who we have these this, these kind of limitless powers and uh, and that it's only um, and that sadly it's only when we kind of have tragedy or, or or kind of stumbles along the way these 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 barriers that we see as being much taller perhaps than they really are that we keep ourselves from from ever uh, truly reaching our, our kind of self-actualized um, uh, selves that we don't uh, become kind of the best that we can be. Um, and it's as tragic of a story as it is. The ending is so so beautiful that it that it highlights so much strength uh, within Tony that it's uh, that it, it really ties all that together in terms of of communicating that that we are all inherently good people and through love and support and uh, um, uh, and even being a bit redeemed um, by by others and being supported by others and being encouraged by others that we can all be successful at whatever we choose to be successful at. And you can't have second chances. Like he right, absolutely. Happens at the end. Yeah. We won't, let, let's not spoil it right mm -hmm. at the end. Right. I mean, we've, we've talked about everything else, but <laughs> right. but uh, we won't spoil the end. Mm -hmm. um, Incorruptible, on the other hand, is more 
like on a broader sense, it's a very different, uh, it's a very different story. It's like post uh, yeah, it's post-apocalyptic, like The Walking Dead, right? You get to see how people are reacting to what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like what happens when you lose that uh, hero figure, that savior figure, when you lose that ideal, what happens? Um, and then on the character specifically, I think what people can get from it is, you know, sometimes we we want to be something in particular or we have this ideal. And when we try to go to those extremes, when we try to be, in his case, uh, incorruptible, but uh, for most of us just being inflexible, just being very stringent, um, it's not the healthiest way to do things. And Max discovers that in the story. He tries to be perfect and it doesn't it doesn't work out it's not until he's willing to really accept that he's not perfect that he is fallible that he can make mistakes that he can't be perfect that he's able to strive and move forward and i think that's what would, um i think that's what would speak to a lot of people who read who read incorruptible it you know it's a, they're both really fun books but i think at their core they have some really really great lessons yeah, yeah. They're between the two books. I, I don't think you'll um, you'll find a better kind of collected series to to bring into therapy. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it was not only personally enjoyable, but it was it was immensely professionally um, helpful to uh, uh, to bring in into sessions with clients and really help them kind of discover their own paths and and what they do to kind of uh, cast themselves onto those paths and what other you know the influence of others as well. So if you can't pick this up from uh, our conversation so far, we highly recommend that you pick up Irredeemable. Sure, and yeah, yeah, pick it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, and, and actually, there's a, a great a hardcover paperback. It, it's uh, I can understand why somebody wouldn't want to get you know all nine trade paperbacks, you know, collecting the 37 issues and whatnot, um, you know, right off the bat. Uh, you know, of course, they're collected in little trade paperbacks, four issues at a time, um, and then there's the Ultimately, I think the the strongest recommendation I can make is for the hardcover. It's like fifty bucks on Amazon. Um, it's issues one through twelve, and uh, while it doesn't go, of course, all the way to the end, the the redeeming portion, and uh, the the tie together, um, it it really explores a lot of his upbringing, his background, his uh, what's been influential in his childhood as well as his adult life. Um, that's those the first twelve issues are really the I think the the best. Kind of set that if uh, if therapist is looking to bring irredeemable into into sessions, that's all you need. The first twelve sessions, I'm sorry, first twelve issues, you'll um, you'll really be set. But it'll be hard. I think you'll find to stick with only the twelve issues after you read them yourself. And of course, I'm going to recommend uh, that you get the digital versions. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, you can get them on Comicsology. Um, it's probably the best way to go. And they do have omnibuses of uh, which means that it's the entire collection. Um, all 37 issues of Irredeemable and all 30 of Incorruptible. And the one special, there is a special. I don't remember yep, yep. which set that's in. I'm imagining it's in the Incru- uh, Irredeemable yep. set. And you can um, you can buy them all in one shot. Or just pick and choose the, the issues that you want and bring them up on your computer, your, your tablet, your phone. Mm-hmm. Anytime, anywhere. Yeah. That's my recommendation. Yeah, Irredeemable is <laughs> definitely... Or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, digital is definitely uh, a good way to go too for for anybody who wants to save uh, save space. Um, you know, it, it looking checking right now, it's like sixty two dollars if you want to get basically the entire uh, run of uh, of Irredeemable, the the both omnibuses. Um, 
So yeah, that would definitely be a great way to go. So yeah, pick them up and I think I think we're gonna cut it uh here. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about in these uh in these two stories, but I think we talked about the the overall of them and there are a lot of little things that are really great. Um but but we definitely not gonna go into that. We'll we'll be here for another hour. All right. So so <laughs> so Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Um if people want to find out more about you, um, where should they go? Yeah, go to comicspedia.net. That's C-O-M-I-C-S-P-E-D-I-A.net. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Comicspedia. I'm also on Facebook at Comicspedia. Uh, basically, if you Google the word Comicspedia, chances are you'll find me. Um, there's somebody squatting on comicspedia.com. So uh, <laughs> that, there's, that website's nothing. But as long as you ignore that one, it's, I'm pretty easy to find as long as you Google uh, Comicspedia. Okay, and uh, you can also look for us at San Diego Comic-Con in July. Yeah. And for more information on Geek Therapy, visit geektherapy.com or follow us on Twitter at Geek Therapy. Thanks. Okay.